the Truth Quest podcast. This is our Truth Quest Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of scripture. You can subscribe to Truth Quest podcast anywhere that you subscribe for podcasts. Also, you can join us from YouTube or from Facebook. We've got three different channels that we take questions from and we'll take any questions that you want to ask. Our desire is to look at the questions through the lens of scripture to know what God's word says so that we can figure out what we believe. We know that God's word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that God's word is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. We have a question already loaded to start off with. If you would like to ask a question, then write, uh, just go ahead in the comment section, write the word question or put a Q or a question mark in front of your question. That way I can identify it. Go ahead and ask your question and then we'll go ahead and bring it in. Our first question is from a previous uh, podcast that we are asked, uh, are Christians obligated to keep the Sabbath and to eat kosher? Um, so whether or not this kind of falls into the, the category of are you and I supposed to keep the law? We know that when it comes to the Sabbath that this was made with the nation of Israel, that God made an everlasting covenant with the nation of Israel, but did not make that covenant with the church. And never in the New Testament are we told that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. Now the argument goes, well, keeping the Sabbath day is one of the Ten Commandments. I think it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And so people will ask, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath day? And uh, the answer to that is, is that we don't keep the law. We don't keep sacrifices because Jesus became our sacrifice. We don't have a high priest because Jesus is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus has become our Sabbath, so we don't keep the Sabbath. Now, a lot of people get Sunday and use Sunday as a Sabbath, kind of like, We've replaced it with Sunday, but again, this is just not biblical. The Bible says that one person esteems one day above the rest, another person esteems all days alike. Let each be fully convinced in their own mind. These are gray areas. When it comes to kosher, I think a lot less people believe that they are under the kosher law because there's obvious certain laws that you and I are not under. They're not for us, and I know very few people who try to keep the law and if they try to, they believe that they're more spiritual because they do, then um, they fall into a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems in trying to do that. Never does the Bible say that you and I are somehow to find favor with God by keeping the law. In fact, the Bible tells us not to let anyone judge us according to these things, that these things are shadows of things that were to come and so the answer is no, we are not obligated to keep the Sabbath. If you want to go to church on Saturday, you can. If you find a fellowship of people that meet on Saturday and you want to go to church on Saturday, more power to you, you can do that. Um, but you don't have to. And the reason that we go to church on Sunday is because we find that early in the book of Acts. We see that the Lord appeared to them on the day he was resurrected, then the following week, and that they met together on what's called in the book of Acts on the Lord's day. But we're not even given any definition or any command that we're to meet every Lord's day. Simply, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that we are not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. I uh, hope you guys are having a blessed day. It's good to see you. Um, if I haven't seen you in a while, I hope you're doing well. Let me know in the comment section how you're doing. If uh, I haven't seen you in a while or you haven't connected us with a while in a while, say hi and connect with us. And if you have any questions about prophecy, the Bible, living for Jesus, apologetics, any of those things, uh, we'll take a stab at trying to make sure that we can get a good biblical answer for all of them. So it's good to see you guys. Good to see you, Daniel, uh, here with us today. Uh, and we have a question. Uh, and by the way, if you're new here, this is your first time joining us um, for this Q&A. Really glad to have you. We do this every Wednesday or just about every Wednesday, just about every Saturday. Uh, we meet for an hour and take whatever questions um, you would bring in. So the question that we've got here, first of all, is from Brady. And Brady asks, who is the great whore or the harlot 
in Revelation chapter 17. So I want to go ahead and bring that up on the screen and maybe we can get an idea from taking a look at it on exactly what it is. I'm going to go ahead and turn this down just a, uh, yeah, down just a little bit. All right. So um, I'm going to go ahead and bring you on the screen here and um, we are bringing the scriptures up on the screen here and we'll take a look at them. So this is the scarlet woman, the scarlet beast, and um, it says, uh, then one of the seven angels who, um, who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast and was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand seven golden, um, in her hand a golden cup full of abominations of filthiness and fornications and on her forehead was written mystery Babylon the great the mother of harlots the abomination of the earth and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus and when I saw her I marveled in amazement all right so uh, thank you very much uh, Brady for your question um, so the great harlot seems to be some kind of a system that maybe is the one world government uh, that persecutes the saints. Um, it is a mystery, right? So this is mystery Babylon. So it, really understanding it completely clearly is a little bit hard. But I think as we move uh, closer to the last days, we'll be able to see these things even further. We also know that the whole world gets rich off of mystery Babylon and then is all of a sudden destroyed, which tells us that before we're going to have a huge financial collapse, the very last one, there's going to be some kind of a financial boom that will take place. That doesn't mean it's right around the corner. It doesn't mean that we can't have a recession or even a depression now, depending on how close we are. But we do know that the entire world gets rich off of mystery Babylon. And this is a really interesting thought because when we think of the last days, it's easy for us to think of things as, as if they are apocalyptic helicopters and dark clouds and all of those things happening, but to think about things being prosperous. And at the same time they're prosperous for the world, there is a persecution with the saints. Um, we'll take it that this is taking place during the tribulation period. And so there's persecution against Christians and not um, for those who are not Christians. All right, so thank you, um, Brady. I appreciate your question. And I think that's a good, it's a good question. I think we're seeing more and more of these things develop as time goes on as far as who the major players will be in the last days. So we have another question here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Hope you're having a great day. Um, will more people be in the lake of fire than in the new heaven and new earth? Many will say, Lord, I've kept the law, cast out demons, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Uh, sad thought. So there, there's a couple of places. There, there's one in Luke 13 where Jesus says, strive to enter into the narrow gate. When one had cried out to him and said, um, are there few who are going to be saved? It's the same kind of question that you're asking, Jari. And I love that Jesus responded to the individual. Because we can, we can think about the masses that need to be saved and whether a few are going to be saved or many are going to be saved. But, what we, but each person can only make sure that they are going to heaven. I can't for sure persuade anyone to go to heaven. I can be used by God and the, the, the preaching of the gospel gets people saved. And so we want to be preaching the gospel. But the only one that I can know for sure is going to make it into heaven is is me. And so Jesus said, strive to enter in by the narrow gate. For many are going to say, Lord, Lord, and will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. So there are going to be many people who say that they are following after Jesus and they aren't because they're religious, because they believe that they're okay, 
because maybe they thought they did miracles or cast out demons when they really didn't do it. Or maybe they did do it because they were part of what was real, but they themselves were not real. Remember, sometimes God used people in the world who were evil to do things that he wanted to get done, like Balaam and, um, and some others. And so the answer to your question, Jari, is a sad answer, as you said, and that is that, yes, narrow is the way and few there are who find it that leads to eternal life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that find it. So I would think in the end, comparatively, remember, we're going to see people saved from every tongue, every tribe, every nation under the earth. So there are going to be a lot of people who are saved, but relatively few compared to those who are saved, relatively few compared uh, to those who are lost. And um, what this should say, what this should do to us is give us a heart for, for the lost, that we would call out to God, that we would preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation and people get saved and get transformed when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that is to receive him. There are those that like to argue today against whether or not receiving Jesus is the way that you're saved. John 1.12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So if you want to criticize salvation by receiving Jesus, you are criticizing the Bible. I think maybe you should find a different way to criticize. And I think sometimes because people aren't giving people an opportunity to get saved, maybe they preach the gospel to them, then they get critical of what other people are doing. It would be better for us to be critical of ourselves and less critical of others because, hey, people need to hear the gospel to get saved. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross. You, you can't save yourself. You are lost in your sin. He died for you. And if you receive him, if you begin to live for him, if you enter into a relationship with him and you begin to know him, uh, then you can have eternal life. And you can do that today. If you're watching this, just simply ask him into your life. Invite him into your life. Say, Lord, I want you in my life and I want to live for you. And if you say that really from your heart and you mean it, then you will be transformed radically. All right, so thank you very much, Jari, for your question. I really appreciate that. I wanna welcome all of you guys that are joining us for our Q&A for the very first time. It's really good to see you guys. If you have a question, you can write the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of your question and then go ahead and submit that and we will go ahead and bring it on. I think we've got another first time listener with us today. Uh, and this is um, B. Smith and B says, Acts 10.38 says, Jesus healed those who were, um, who were under the power of the devil. Can anyone be under the power of the devil who does being under, what, what does being under his power mean? All right, well, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at that passage first of all. So that's Acts 10.38. So I'm going to get rid of that, I think. I'm going to go here. Um, so I'm going to go to Acts 10.38, and then I'm going to go ahead and bring it up on the screen for you so we can look at it together. Um, all right. So I'm going to start back a little bit. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring you in on the, on the uh, bring the scriptures up on for you so you can look at them. And uh, we are going to go ahead and start, you said 38, um, let's go ahead and start in 34. And um, so I'm just trying to find the headline, the head, uh, header to this, so I don't see it. So sorry to make you guys dizzy there. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and start in th uh, verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he hath uh, feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say ye know which was published, I need to get this to the King James, which was published throughout all of Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John was preached, 
how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing healings, uh, doing healing all that were oppressed by the devil for God is with him. All right, let me see if I can change this over to um, the New King James really quick before I go back and answer your question, B. I'm trying to get rid of something here that's in the way. All right. Um, and I'm going to go to library and I'm going to go to New King James. All right. Let me just go ahead and um, I think I already um, uh did that how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him all right so let's go back to your question B and that is um, Acts 10 38 says that Jesus healed all who were under the power of the devil can anyone under the power of the devil and what does it mean to be under his power um, so I, I think of in the book of Luke where Jesus heals a woman who is bent over that has a spirit of infirmity. Later on, Jesus will say that this woman had been under the power of Satan for 18 years. He says, think of it for 18 years. So yes, Satan is able to influence people and we can be under the power of the enemy. Paul talked about a thorn in his flesh that was given to him by Satan and God used it to keep him humble. He called that an infirmity, which and we get our word infirm from. And so it seems to be some kind of an illness. Paul also said to the Galatians, I preach to you because of an infirmity and you would have given me your eyes if you would have had the opportunity. So it seems that Satan is able to cause sicknesses and we see this with the book of Job as well. For Christians, we can be confident that nothing's gonna get through to us unless it's from God, because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And with Job, God allowed certain things to happen, but wouldn't allow Satan to do other things. And it seems like Satan is causing a certain kind of havoc that is in the world today. And so that, and I, I think that's one of the reasons that people are under the power of Satan. So it says that Jesus went about delivering people from the power of Satan, and Jesus does that today as well. When someone comes to Christ, they come out of darkness and into the light. They come off of the, the sand and onto the rock. They are delivered from the power of Satan to the power of Jesus Christ, who delivers them and sets them free. So if you are a Christian bee, then you don't got to worry about Satan unless you cooperate with him. So the Bible, the Bible says that we are to not give place to the enemy. And I think some Christians do give place to the enemy and open up opportunities for Satan to be able, probably through temptation and sin, to control them. So we don't want to give any kind of a place to the enemy. But um, we've been given authority and we are not under uh, the power of the wicked one. We are, yeah, we are not under the power of the wicked one. Trying to get my lighting set here a little bit better, which I know doesn't matter for you, those of you who are um, who are watching. All right. So, um, okay. So anyway, so, um, so, so the evil one can't touch us. And if we, we uh, somehow cooperate with him or give into his schemes, that's where things can happen to us along those lines. All right. So thank you very much, B, for your question. I do want to say that there's nothing for us to be afraid of. Jesus said, uh, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. Uh, we've been told that if it, uh, in 1 John, that if any of us are in Christ, we don't sin. And that's better seen as practicing sin and the evil one cannot touch us. We've also been told that we've been saved from the evil one in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. So you can have great confidence that the enemy is not coming after us and that Jesus today is still setting people free from the power of Satan. Thank you, B. I really appreciate your question. That's great. Uh, we have another question here. Looks like somebody who's new uh, to us on our q and I'm glad you found us. Good to have you here. Um, the, so the question is, do all Christians speak in tongues? When do we get blessed with the Holy Ghost? 
All right, Letty, thank you very much for your question. So there's two questions here. Number one, do all Christians speak with tongues? And the answer to that is no. I do know there are a lot of people who try to say that you can. Um, these are, are, are usually Pentecostal groups. And, and I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. I'm not a cessationist, which is a, a word that means that you believe that the gifts were for the first century only. I believe that they are, that they've never gone away, that they're still happening today. And I believe that you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is speaking in tongues. I do believe it is a gift of the Spirit. But the Bible says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, do all have gifts of healings? Do all work miracles? Do all speak in tongues? And the, the answer to that is no. Not everybody has the gifts of healings. Not everybody does miracles. And not everybody speaks in tongues. So it is not a sign of a genuine Christian. Uh, here's what I think happens. I think sometimes Christian groups try to gain control over the people that are there by coming up with something that is unique with them. They want to keep you from going to some other church or some other group by them having a truth that is better than anyone else. And this is really, really dangerous. You'll find it when it comes to speaking in tongues. You'll find it when it comes to healing. Um, you'll find it when it comes to other things that, that groups will try to control their people with. And I think this is always a danger. The Bible tells us clearly how we're supposed to live and not everybody speaks in tongues but we do all can receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's your first question. Do all speak in tongues? The answer to that is no. Now, there are some who say you're not saved unless you speak in tongues. And when you talk to people about tongues, um, they will often say, well, you've never spoken in tongues. I do speak in tongues, by the way. Received the gift 30, 40 years ago, and I do speak in tongues. I speak in tongues still today when I'm really struck by something. And there's something I just feel like I need to get into the presence of God and worship him because the Bible says when we speak in tongues, our spirit speaks mysteries to God. So it's me speaking to God. It's not thus says the Lord, that's prophecy. And a lot of times the interpretation comes thus says the Lord and it's prophecy because 1 Corinthians 14 clearly says that my spirit speaks mysteries to God. That's what speaking in tongues is. Um, when do we get blessed with the Holy Ghost? So when you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I used to go to, to charismatic churches and they would say things about other churches. They don't, they don't believe in the Holy Spirit, which I always thought was a bad criticism. Because what, you don't believe in the third part of the Holy Spirit, of, of the, the, de the deity of the Godhead? Of course, the Holy Spirit is real. And the way question is, how does he work in your life? So Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. He's with you to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to bring you to Christ so that you make a commitment to God. The Holy Spirit's the one that brings the conviction, not condemnation, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is a conviction for the things that you and I are to, are to commit our lives to Christ. So we, were, we fall into that conviction by the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit moves inside of us on the moment we're born again. We see this in, I think it's John 20, when Jesus breathes on the disciples and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1, Jesus says, tarry in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So I call it the upon experience. When you read through the book of Acts, it doesn't really make a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit being the empowering of the Spirit. But we see that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were empowered to do the, the very things that God had called them to do. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you are empowered. In Acts chapter 4, they're warned that they're not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And so they gather together and they pray. And they pray for boldness. And the Bible says the room that they were in was shaken and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were given boldness to speak the things of God. So I like the term upon. I think it's a better term than baptized in the Spirit. But if you tell me, hey, I just, re I just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to argue with you. 
I think these are, uh, these words are synonymous. Receiving the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon you. When we're talking about those, we all mean the same thing. And a lot of times we get hyper about correcting people when they don't use the exact biblical terminology, but we know what they're talking about, right? And I think that that is always, you always get carried away with that. It's always a mistake uh, to make that kind of um, of a statement. So do all Christians speak in tongues? No, but it is a gift of the Spirit and people can receive the gifts as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Do we all get blessed? Um, when do we get blessed with the Holy Spirit? When we ask, maybe the laying on of hands. So Jesus said, uh, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so you ask for it. Lord, empower me. God, I'm praying right now, God, empower me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, empower us as we gather together over this venue and we talk about your word. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we can be empowered by you to do the work that you've called us to do. And may you manifest that with different gifts because we are all one body, but we have different offices and we have different giftings. Thank you for the body of Christ and all of the different gifts. And we do pray that we would be able to minister those gifts to one another effectively. Thank you so much, Letty, for your question. I really appreciate it. Uh, we have another question here from, uh, okay, um, All right, we have a question here from Joshua. This is a big one, so get ready for it. Ready? Boom. All right. Um, so let me see if I can go ahead and get through this question. Hello, um, Robert and church family. I have a question. This comes to us from Joshua, by the way. Good to see you, Joshua. I have a question from Psalms 8411. Is that the Lord is a sun and a shield. It also says in John chapter 1, verse 7, and eight, that he came to testify about the light of the world. Well, I'm trying to tell you, um, let's see. Um, well, I'm trying to tell you that Jesus Christ is the son or glorified body of God promised us a star in heaven. I only know this because I was telling you, I remember being a sand baby coming from the golden planet. All right, Joshua. Well, I appreciate that. Um, First of all, I don't believe we're sand babies. I don't believe we're coming from a golden planet. Um, I don't believe that Jesus is the sun, the S-U-N. He is the sun. And remember that God dwells in an unapproachable light. All right, so this means that, hey, if, if we were to see him in our flesh, we would die because God is full of glory. And light reveals things and darkness hides things. So the Bible's not going to say that God is darkness. The Bible says that God is light and that God reveals things to us. So I think there's a confusion, Joshua, over the sun, what a physical light is, and God being spirit and dwelling in an inapproachable light. I mean, the Bible says there's not even any shifting of shadows with God at all. And so I think that's where the confusion comes in and um, that, that understanding, look, the Bible is very clear and we want to, we want to study the scriptures for what it says. And we don't want to add extra biblical things to the word of God. These are things that we say, like I'm a sand baby or I'm a star. I'm, I'm made out of gold dust. These are things that are, are added to the word of God. And we want to stay in the biblical aspect in the biblical sense. All right. So thank you, Joshua. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, and we are uh, looking for another question here. So we have another question from Wayne Rockin' Red Dillinger. Good to see you, Ray, um, Wayne. Um, I'm going to go ahead and bring it in here. And so Wayne's joining us from Facebook as well. Uh, Wayne says, good afternoon. In 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah the prophet was about to be taken up with God, how did the sons of the prophet know he was going to be taken? Also, Elijah knew as well. It is a bit confusing to me. I'm not sure whether I can find exactly the reference, Wayne, that you're talking about. When you talk about, um, let me go ahead and see if I can find this really quick. I'm going to go to 2 Kings 
and uh, chapter 2, and we'll just start in verse 1, and I'll pull this up. Uh, let's just read a little bit of this and see if we can figure this out. Uh, so I want to go ahead and bring up the... Um, there we go. So it says here, And it came to pass, this is um, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with, that Elijah went with Elisha, from Gilgal and Elisha and Elisha stay um, and Elijah said to Elijah stay here for the Lord has sent me to Bethel but Elijah said as the Lord lives and as my soul lives I will not leave you so they went down to Bethel now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came to Elijah and said to him do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today and he said yes I know uh, keep silent all right so um, Elijah knows, Elisha knows, and the prophets know. So coming back to your question in 2 Kings, when Elijah was taken up with God, how did the sons of the prophets know? Uh, and I think the answer to that, is, Wayne, is that they were the sons of the prophets. They were prophets. And so they were communicating with God. And God had revealed to Elijah that he was going to be taken. God had revealed to Elisha that he was going to be taken. And God had revealed to the sons of the prophet that he was going to be taken. God doesn't work this way with us today. He does work in prophecy, but it's different than the Old Testament gift of prophecy that they had operating with them then. And remember, if, if they said something that wasn't true, they themselves had to be stoned. They had to be killed. So they were living under this heavy concept of what prophecy is. And I think that when we read some of these Old Testament passages, and the way that they operated, it's hard for us to grasp onto them because it was so long ago and we're not operating in those kind of ways today. Excuse me, yeah, we're not operating in those kind of ways today. So I think that God had revealed it to them the same way through the Holy Spirit. And remember, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals in their days, upon kings, on prophets, um, and the Holy Spirit could leave, go with a person and leave like he did with Samson. Judges as well received uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that that's how they knew that Elijah was going to be taken during that time. I just think it was assumed that we would understand that these guys are prophets. They were in communication with God and God was revealing some things to them. Didn't mean they knew everything. They only knew what God had revealed to them and God had revealed to them that Elisha Elijah was going to be taken and had revealed that to Elijah. All right, so thank you very much, Wayne Rockin' Red Dillinger. I appreciate you and I appreciate your question. Hopefully um, that was helpful to you. So we have another question from Lynn. Lynn, it's good to see you. Lynn comes to us from Facebook as well. Lynn says, I know someone who goes to church that is teaching a false gospel. If they are being misled, are they going to be condemned or will the teachers of that church going to be the ones judged most harshly? Thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that. So when the disciples asked Jesus about the last days, what are the last days going to be like and what are going to be the signs of their coming? The first thing Jesus said was, make sure that you are not deceived. So the onus of making sure that I'm not deceived falls on me. I have to make sure that I'm not deceived. And that's why we are on a truth quest because we want to know what the truth is. We want to know what the Bible says so that you and I can determine what we are going to believe from what the Bible says. And the very fact that there are false teachers that are out there that teach these things that are false tells us that we need to be even more careful to make sure that we search the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things are so and that we are not deceived. And that's why we don't want to be on, on an I'm right quest, which is what most of us want to do. We've believed something, we were brought up believing it, we've been taught it, we're most familiar with it, maybe we're insecure about it. And so when someone argues with us about it, we get angry or we attack or we get overly defensive. All of these are, are a problem. If we are confident in what we believe, or if we go, you know, here's my understanding, 
but maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe if I search it out more, I'll change my mind. That's a good place for us to be because there's a lot of things that we don't understand. So yes, the responsibility of not being deceived falls on the individual. You, when you're in a church and that church is teaching false doctrine, get out of that church. If someone's telling you it's teaching false doctrine, don't be offended by them. And I see this all the time. When I, I bring up someone that teaches false doctrine, people get offended because they were, they were moved by them. They were touched by them. They heard them quote scriptures. They say, God's done so many good things in my life by this person. And so therefore, I, I can't believe that they're a false teacher. But is your loyalty towards someone that you were blessed by or towards God? And if they're teaching something that is wrong, then you want to know that and you want to get as far away from that as you possibly can. You want to turn and flee. False teachers. However, the second part of your question here, which is um, who is going to be condemned, judged more, most harshly, and that's the false teachers. It's one thing if you're deceived and you're supposed to make sure you're not. You have that responsibility every single one of us. However, if I'm deceiving, the Bible says not, not many of us desire to be teachers because we incur a stricter judgment. Can you imagine if I'm deceiving people worse on purpose? Or if I'm not willing to search the scriptures to make sure I'm believing what's true and proper and that I teach what is false. Hey, there might be some teaching that I have wrong but I'm open to whatever the Bible says. I'm open to learning and searching. And that's the way every teacher should be. And so when a pastor says something like, don't touch God's anointed, right? Because you question what they teach. I want you to question what I teach. I want you to search the scriptures. I want you to be confident with what's said. And I, I think any pastor worth his salt is going to have the same thought. When a pastor starts to say, don't you check me out, don't you touch God's anointed. Don't you check out the things that I say or, or, or tell somebody I'm teaching false doctrine. Um, then there's a problem. I have no, I have no problem with anyone saying Robert's teaching this and it's a false doctrine. Number one, if it is then I need to repent, I need to turn to find out what the truth is. So I'm not teaching it. Number two, people claim all the time. People are teaching false doctrines and if they're claiming I'm teaching a false doctrine, but I'm not, I don't got to worry about that. So check out the things that I'm saying. And any pastor worth his salt is going to say the same things. Thing. Remember in the book of Acts, the Bereans, which there were Thessalonica and Berea were two towns close together. The Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonicans because they received the word of God with all joy, but they searched the scriptures to find out whether these things are true. You and I want to be like the Bereans. But yeah, um, as a teacher, you're teaching false doctrine, you're going to have a stricter judgment. And if you're doing it for money or power or to control people, if you're doing it, uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter how what the, the kind of heart that a pastor is supposed to have when he is doing something. And um, we want to make sure that we have the right heart to what Jesus said. Um, it's interesting when he's talking to people who are in the church, he's talking. He talks about being obedient to them, um, learning the things that are, um, to being obedient to those that are taught uh, because they're watching out for your souls. But when it talks to those of us, let me go ahead and see if I can get to, um, let me get to 1 Peter here. I want to bring up 1 Peter 5. Um, here I am again. I got to learn how to navigate this thing a little bit better. And I want to sh I want to bring this up to show you. Um, yeah, here we go. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and bring this on the screen to you, so I can show you this. So so here is this is First Peter chapter five verses one through five. Years ago, I'd gone to visit Charles Swindoll's church, and um, I was pastoring, and we were on vacation, and this is when he was in um, California. And um, we showed up and he was teaching this passage. And I just felt it was like God just encouraging me that I make sure that I do these things in ministry. So here's what pastors are supposed to do. This is what leaders are supposed to do. The elders who are among you, I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So an elder is a pastor or an elder is a religious, a spiritual leader. 
An elder is to care over people's spiritual needs. It seems like deacons in the Bible were to care over people's physical needs. And so here where it says, um, it goes on to say, um, and also partakers of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So you are to be like a shepherd and a shepherd cares for his sheep, right? Protects the sheep, is willing to sacrifice for the sheep. It says serving as overseers. So you're, this doesn't belong to you. No, no one belongs to you. No, no church belongs to you. You're an overseer with Christ. And we're, we're to serve as overseers, not by compulsion, not because you have to. This is a choice, something that you want to do. If you're pastoring and you feel like this is what I've got to do, quit. Find something else to do. Willingly, right? Not because you need to. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. There's all kinds of reasons people do it for dishonest gain. They do it to raise money. They do it to gain money. They do it to gain power. They do it because it's a place of influence. And I think that God will judge them. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly not being lords over those entrusted to you. And this is those that are put under your spiritual care are entrusted to you and you are not to lord over the flock. When the good shepherd appears, he will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So there, to the faithful servant, to the faithful shepherd who is out there, we are given a crown of glory and that is what God's called us to. So to answer, um, come back and answer your question. Um, yes, the deceiver is going to receive a more harsh punishment, but you have the responsibility as an individual to make sure that you are not deceived. And I just want to uh, take time. Thank you, Lynn, for your question. I just want to take time once again to encourage you. This is why we do what we do with our TruthQuest Q&A. This is why we study the scriptures that we might know what's there so we can study what it says, see what the Bible says, and then believe what the Bible says. Not just believing what one person says, but believing what the Word of God says. All right, so thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that, Lynn. Uh, we have a question here from Shelly. And by the way, if, you're, if you are joining us for the very first time, it's really glad to we're really glad to have you. If you're joining us on YouTube or on Facebook, you can write your question in the comment section. Just put the word com uh, question in front of it or a question mark in front of it and we'll bring it on screen here and we'll take a look at your question. So Shelly says, are the 12 tribes of Israel, Revelation 7-4, sealed before or after the tribulation? My understanding with this, Shelly, is that they are sealed after uh, the tribulation. And so let's just go ahead and go there. I'm going to go to Revelation chapter 7 and we're going to go to verse 4. Revelation 7 verse 4. Um, and let's see. Yeah, let's go back to verse 1 and let's read this together and see if there's anything that we can kind of get out of it, all right? So it said, this is um, Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from, ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the sea, or the earth or the sea, or the trees that will be sealed, um, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, there were 144,000 of all of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So let me go ahead and bring your question back up here. We'll take a look and see if we can't answer that. Um, so Shelley, the, first of all, the 12 tribes are sealed during the tribulation period. These are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Remember, Israel is in the tribulation period. Jeremiah 30 verse 7, the day of the Lord is a day of gloominess and darkness. It is a day of great shadows. It is a day of Jacob's trouble. And God's going to save Israel out of this time. He's using it to take the nation of Israel that I think it's Revelation, um, excuse me, Romans 11, 25 said blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so there's this time, the Gentiles, Jerusalem's going to be trampled underfoot until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, has come in. 
And by all accounts, we are very near the end of the fullness of the Gentiles. And so uh, we are close to that time. Um, and these are sealed during the tribulation period. These are 144,000, 12,000 of each of the tribes. And it gives the tribes that are listed there in the book of Revelation. And uh, they are sealed so that it cannot harm them. So God's protecting them in a supernatural way. Notice also that the seal on their forehead comes before the Antichrist seals on the forehead. So this is a copy of what God has done. God sealed the 144,000 on their forehead. And so the Antichrist does the same thing um, that, um, that the Lord does. And that's Satan in a nutshell. He is a copycat. And um, so they are, they are sealed during the tribulation period. And I think that these men are probably not believers before. I mean, I'm speculating a little bit there, but it seems like they come to Christ um, after the tribulation period, unless there's those 144,000 who are Jewish that God's got saved today. And I guess that could be the case. I don't know why it wouldn't be. All right. So I think that's the answer to our question. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate, Shelly, your question. And I hope that you are having a good day. Uh, We have a question here from Sharon. And Sharon wants to know, why does Jesus refer to Elijah coming with the means John the Baptist, coming when he means John the Baptist? Why doesn't uh, he just say John instead of Elijah? Confusing, confusing. Yes, Um, I do think it's confusing. And I think that the Bible very easily could have said things in a lot clearer way. There's a lot that you have to dive into. You've got to compare scripture to scripture. Peter talks about this when he talks about the writings of Paul, which he calls scripture, that are hard to understand and many twist the meaning. And so, yeah, we need to rightly divide God's word. We need to compare scripture to scripture uh, in order to understand what's being said. And Jesus even said when he's talking about this, if you can handle it, John is Elijah, but Elijah is going to come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he talks about John coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So yes, Elijah is going to return before the great and powerful day of the Lord. I think he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, I believe it is. Um, The other one could be Enoch. The other one could be Moses. I kind of think it's Moses instead of Enoch because we're dealing with the time of Israel's trouble during the tribulation period. And so these two would be Jewish and they're in Jerusalem and they're dealing with Jews. So I would think they would be Jewish. Is that hundred percent? I don't think so, but that's what I think. That's what I believe. At least now that's what I believe. Um, so a lot that we find within the pages of scripture is confusing and takes us really diving into it. And I think this is by design. Because remember when Jesus was on the earth, he spoke in parables so that those who believed could dive in and learn truths that the parables reveal and those who weren't interested would not stumble over the truth. So things are hard for us to really grasp in the word of God, I think because God wants us to dive in. God does not reveal himself, Sharon, to, um, to casual seekers. The Bible says you will search for him and find him when you search for him with all of your heart. And so we need to pour everything into it. And that's why, hey, we take our lives to study the scriptures and they can be read in about 70 hours. The Bible can be read from cover to cover in about 70 hours, but we take our lifetime and pour into studying it. I've studied it in excess of 40 years and still am learning new things and still have new things that are brought up. I'll have questions that are asked on things that I haven't even considered. And I've been pastoring for 30, I've been pastoring the same church now for 37 years and I've been a pastor for over 40 years. And so, um, yeah, I do think it is confusing, but I think it's done on purpose because God wants us to dive in. And because there are certain things that are confusing and that we have trouble really comprehending, then we have to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm going to, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, I've got a shelf in my mind 
for th further information. That I've got to put something for further information because I don't quite understand what it says. And I think with a lot of things, Sharon, that's the way that we've got to look at it. Um, we certainly live in a time when we can dive into words God, to God's word better and more deeply with more tools than ever before. And these tools are online. We can also watch a lot of videos that talk about topics, but you gotta be careful with those. Even though we're a content creator, we're making videos, you gotta be careful because there's people that are telling all kinds of lies that are out there and you just wanna know who you're listening to. And a lot of times if they don't tell you, then that'll be a clue. If you, don't, if you can't go on there and you can't find who's this from, like if you look at our content, it's from Calvary Tucson. If you look at content from, from Alan Parr, you, you know who he is, you know what he's about. You can look it up and see um, what denomination he is. I think he's Baptist. Um, but these other ones that come from maybe the Seventh-day Adventist or the Worldwide Church of God, a lot of these videos that are on, on YouTube, just they won't tell you who they are. They'll just come on and tell you content and they won't tell you who you are. And so God wants us to dive in and we live in a day when we can dive in and find out more than ever before. And hey, th there's a lot that's there and God has revealed certain things. The revealed things belong to us. The secret things belong to God and God wants us to really dive in. So dive in more to it there, um, Sharon. And yeah, it's confusing, but that's okay. It's okay that there are things that are confusing and it's okay that there are certain things that you and I go, I don't understand it. I don't know exactly, I don't know why this was said the way that it was said. And we can dive in. And remember, God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. So God doesn't do things the way that we do things. All right? So thank you very much. I appreciate that, Sharon, your question. We have a question here from Golden Truth. Um, should we celebrate Halloween? If yes, to what extent? It almost seems hypocritical like we pick and choose, but what's your view, Pastor Robert? Blessings to you. Thank you, Golden Truth. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of things when it comes to celebrating Halloween that we don't want to be involved in. So I think there's certain things that we as Christians are not going to do. Um, when my kids were growing up, we had them dress up, usually like some Disney character, and we would take them from door to door and to get candy trick-or-treat. So we did celebrate Halloween with our kids in that way. Um, we have harvest events at the church and a lot of these harvest events will have candy. They'll have certain aspects of Halloween in them, but we won't say Halloween from the church. And I, I quite frankly don't know how I feel about that. Um, but I will say that there, you could cross a line. You can all of a sudden be so concerned about the spooky, the ooky, um, and demonic aspects that you should not be celebrating them. And there are pagan aspects that we don't want to celebrate at all. But a, a lot of it is, is gray areas. And if you want to say that we are not supposed to celebrate anything pagan at all, then you're going to have to stop using the days of the week, the months of the year. There are things that we do in our lives on a daily basis that come out of the pagan world, like January is from the god Janus. Now, when I say January, I don't even think of the god Janus. I don't think about the god who's looking ahead and back, or looking behind and in front. I'm just using January. And so is it okay for me as a Christian to use the word January because it's got pagan roots in it? Yes, because I don't use it in that way. Now, if I start to worship Janus and and celebrate January because of the God Janus, then there's major problems that fall in line with that. And so, yeah, I do think you could go too far with Halloween. I do think that you could start to, to do things on Halloween that would not be glorifying to God. And I think that each person has to make up their mind and be fully convinced in their own mind. Remember the Bible says that for us to do something that we believe is sin, even though it might not be, if we believe it is, then that for us to do it is sin. And so for some of you, you shouldn't be celebrating Halloween at all. For others of you, you have the freedom to be able to celebrate certain aspects of Halloween. And how far you go with that, you have the freedom to make those choices. As a child of God, if you go too far, then God's able to reveal that to you 
and can bring you back. Because we want to do what God wants us to do. We want to be obedient to the things that God has said. And we certainly don't want to glorify Satan or the things of Satan. But for a child to dress up like a ghost, remember a ghost is a spirit, right? And ghosts, I don't believe in ghosts. I think there's there's demons, not ghosts. Um, or like a, um, a Marvel character or whatever. I don't think there's a problem with those things. And I don't judge parents that would maybe would dress their kids up in ways that I might never dress my kids up like or my grandkids up like. But they would dress their kids up that way. So I don't judge them because, hey, they belong to God and God is able to tell them. But we are able to have this conversation where we can talk about what paganism was, what they celebrated during paganism. There's also the question as to whether or not Halloween had its its roots in some kind of a Christian basis. Um, and it, it may very well have. Or there may be some kind of connection um, to Halloween and remembering the dead. That we would just take a day that we would celebrate Christians that have gone to be with the Lord and we would remember them. However, when that argument is used, I always think, it's not the way we celebrate Halloween. If we did that, that'd be great. And if people want to do that, that'd be great. But that's not the way we celebrate Halloween. We usually go with the more morbid or the macabre. And um, hey, that's uh, something each person's going to have to make up their own mind about is would me dressing up in a skeleton suit and going out would that be sin? And I think it depends. And I don't think that we are, um, I don't think that we're making excuses here. I think we're looking at the, at, at the gray areas and Romans chapter 14 tells us not to argue over doubtful things. For them, it was what day they go to church and whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. There were some people that were just like, just don't do it. Just don't do it. If it's been sacrificed to an idol, then don't do it. Paul in another place says, just don't ask. If you go over to someone's house to eat, don't go, did you buy this at a temple or did you buy it at a market that was, you know, a kosher market? He said, just don't ask. Just go in and eat for conscience sake. And so I think that Halloween is one of those things. There are obviously different levels that people can celebrate it. For a lot of people, it's candy and it is dressing up. And I think to dress up and to, to, to go trick-or-treating or to, or to buy candy or to eat candy on that day may be the most harmful thing that you can do. And I think other people could take it too far and that you've got to seek God for what would be too far and what would not be. All right, hopefully that's helpful, Golden Truth. Um, I do want to make a video on um, a hot topic on should we celebrate Halloween. It's something that I want to work on for next year. I don't think I'll put it, obviously don't have time. I don't think, well, I obviously don't have time to put it up this, um, this year. So we're going to take another question here. This will be our last question for today. We take questions every for an hour, every Wednesday and every Saturday, or at least almost every Wednesday and every Saturday. And so glad that you've joined us and I hope that you've been blessed as we take time to look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible says so we can know what we want to believe. So um, we have a question from Susan and, and Susan says, how do you explain the Trinity to Jehovah Witnesses? I know they don't believe in the Trinity. Thank you, Susan. And uh, this is funny. We always get these kind of questions that are much more in-depth at the end of a Q&A. Um, and I'm, I'm, I want to go ahead and answer this. Um, yeah, so the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was created. But the Bible says that there's nothing that was created without Jesus. And that would even mean Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that you've got this complexity of God that that um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they've even changed their Bible so it doesn't say that. And they try to say that there was someone who had an article, they put it in footnotes in their Bible for a while, but the, the, the Greek scholar came out and said, no, there's no article there. It doesn't say a God, it says God. And the Bible clearly teaches that he is the express image of the living God. The argument that Jesus is God is so sound in Scripture. You've got God calling him God in Hebrews chapter 1. God calls him God. God thy God has anointed you. Uh, you have 
us being told that all things were made by him, for him, and through him, and that without him there's nothing that was made. Uh, we have uh, just so many passages. Revelation chapter 1. He is the Almighty God. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So when I'm talking to a Jehovah Witness, they, uh, they don't look at these passages the same way that, that I do. So what you've got to do is just show them the truth, and they've got to make decisions. I can't make them believe anything. And if they're not open to the truth, to really believing the truth, but they are believing the lies that have been told them through the Watchtower or through the Jehovah Witnesses, there are many problems that they have when it comes to uh, the, the, the person of Jesus is the most important. Um, and the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus is God. When, when Thomas saw him and, and Jesus said, touch the nail prints and put your hand in my side, the Bible says that Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus received worship from people. Angels wouldn't receive worship. No one else would, but Jesus did because he is God in the flesh. First uh, John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten father. And the word is in verse one, the one that was, was with God in the very beginning. And so the identity of who Jesus is, Jesus is God. And when you're talking to a Jehovah Witness, it's just one of those very difficult things. You can go and you can look at the scriptures and you can try to pour it out, but they have been taught how to deal with you. They've actually gone to classes where they teach people how to respond to these passages. So you are just randomly looking to kind of come up with passages that talk about the deity. They've learned how to fight against those passages. And so I would encourage you, Susan, to really pour into the concept of the deity of Christ, to really study it, to study it fervently. Is Jesus God? Um, I, you, you join us on Facebook. If you go to Calvary Tucson's YouTube page and you type in, is Jesus God? There are going to be videos that come up where I cover the passages I've just covered and even other passages. And these are going to help you a lot. So just go to our webpage and then go to the search in, I mean, go, go to our YouTube page and then go to the search in our YouTube page and type in, is Jesus God? And there's going to be a couple videos, probably three or four that are going to come up that are going to deal with that topic and really help you with it. All right. Um, it's got to be a move of the spirit for a Jehovah Witnesses to come, for a, Jehovah, for a witness to come to Christ. And it happens. They are, they're, they're shrinking in their numbers because not as many people are believing anymore because it's harder to continue to teach these lies. And the history is harder to cover up. The history of Jesus coming back again, things that happened in the witness church, um, some very illegal things that have happened within the witness church. Uh, and so um, you could do some research too on just what has happened in the Jehovah Witness church. You could also look at what they believe that's different than Christians. And you could talk to them about that always be um, always be caring about them as an individual. Don't just be don't just get to the point where you're trying to prove yourself right. I, I think that's always a mistake. I want to talk to this Jehovah Witness because I want to prove myself right. Now care for them. Really love them. Think about them and that you want to really win them to Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit's going to be with you working in their lives. And I think that it can be highly effective. All right. So thank you guys very much for joining us. It's been really good to see you guys. Again, if I haven't seen you in a while, say hi in the comment section. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear how you're doing. And um, this is our Saturday Q&A. We will have another Q&A this coming up Wednesday. Uh, so think about your questions, write them down, and you can join us. We take one question per person as we make our way through it. You can join us on YouTube or on Facebook. Um, Calvary Tucson is where you would search for both of those. I think there's three Facebook pages that we take questions off of, but it's really good to be able to take your questions. I hope you guys are blessed. Um, I hope that you stay close to Jesus this week. I hope you're closer to him now than ever before. Uh, we have a service in two hours and we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about the city of Jerusalem. When we first find it in the Bible, how it's the city of God? What does it mean that Jerusalem is holy? 
how God will rule and reign forever and how the new Jerusalem is going to come down and replace it. These will all be things we're talking about in our service tonight as we see Jesus weep over Jerusalem. Also, the prophecies that Jesus gave to Jerusalem that helps us to know that we are living in the last days right now. Jerusalem is one of those keys that the Bible gives us to how we are living and where we're living at today. So God bless you guys. It's really good to see you. Really good to have you here. As I said, um, you can let me know how you're doing uh, in uh, the comments here. I want to thank you guys for taking time to write your questions. Sorry for those of you who wrote questions that we weren't able to get to. Um, I'll look back at these and use these for questions for future Q&As. All right. So God bless you guys. I'm signing out. We will see you guys later on um, and keep your eyes on the skies because Jesus said, when you see these things start to happen, then know that your redemption draws near. God bless you guys. Thank you guys too. All right.